Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Monday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I'm your host, Literally Heather. Okay, so I wasn't going to do an episode this morning because Indiana Apocalypse has me exhausted, but too much happened over the weekend, and I feel like we need to discuss some things. Mainly, first and foremost, the President of the United States just unilaterally removed the citizenry's citizenry's Fourth Amendment protections with an executive order. Let's dig into this a little bit, shall we? So, this is a partial revocation of Directive 28, leaving in place only Sections 3 and 6. I think it's first important to know what Directive 28 is and to know what was revoked. Directive 28 was put in place by Barack Obama's administration concerning signals intelligence activity. Section 1, eliminated. It is the principles governing the collection of signals intelligence. The subsection to pay attention to here is subsection B, which states, Privacy and civil liberties shall be integral considerations in the planning of U.S. signals intelligence activities. The United States shall not collect signals intelligence for the purpose of suppressing or burdening criticism or dissent or for disadvantaging persons based on their ethnicity, race, gender, sexual orientation, or religion. Signals intelligence shall be collected exclusively where there is a foreign intelligence or counterintelligence purpose to support national and departmental missions and not for any other purposes. Remember, this is now removed. It's been revoked. Section 2. Limitations on the use of signals intelligence collected in bulk has been eliminated. Without going into a ton of information, bulk private information collection is back. Wave hi to your honorary NSA agent as they swipe everything you're doing on your computer and in your home with all your smart devices. Section three is refining the process for collecting signals intelligence, which remains. This is essentially just saying that these governmental agencies may need to change how they're collecting said information to be more effective at it. You're surprised, right? You can't imagine the government working harder to improve data collection on its own citizens. Section four, safeguarding personal information collected through signals intelligence eliminated. This includes safeguards for dissemination, retention, data security, access, oversight, international diplomacy. I'm old enough to remember when Obama was spying on all those foreign leaders. Section 5 handles reports. It has been eliminated. Specifically, subsection B that says the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board is encouraged to provide a report that assesses the implementation of any matters contained within the directive. Section 6, which was maintained, specifically subsection A, nothing in this directive shall be construed to prevent me from exercising my constitutional authority, including as commander-in-chief, 
chief executive, and in the conduct of foreign affairs, as well as my statutory authority. Consistent with this principle, a recipient of this directive may at any time recommend to me through the APNSA a change to the policies and procedures contained in this directive. In today's world, everything you do is being tracked and collected. The only way to prevent that is to minimize your digital footprint. And for the people who constantly say, if you aren't doing anything wrong, you don't have anything to worry about. My only question for you is who gets to say what you're doing is wrong? What if the thing that you're doing right now is not wrong, but magically by government fiat becomes wrong tomorrow? Next time you're clicking through one of those impossibly long and impenetrable legal disclaimers to a company's terms of service, it might be time to have a closer look. A new policy in PayPal's fine print triggered a storm of outrage over apparent plans to impose, starting on November 3rd, a hefty fine of $2,500 anytime one of its 400 and 29 million consumers and merchants expressed what the corporate brass deems to be misinformation. PayPal quickly apologized over the weekend for what it called confusion, claiming it was all just an error. But not before a deluge of criticism from a number of high-profile individuals, including its former president, David Marcus. He said, PayPal's new AUP goes against everything I believe in. A private company now gets to decide to take your money if you say something that they disagree with. Free speech advocates like Elon Musk, one of the entrepreneurs behind the founding of PayPal, as well as prominent conservative voices such as Kevin Sorbo, blasted the plans. The controversy comes as tensions run high over misinformation claims heading into next month's important midterm elections in the United States, which could see the Republicans retake control over both houses of Congress. With many on the right fearing that big tech is targeting them due to their political views, the company quickly backtracked. PayPal is not fining people for misinformation and this language was never intended to be inserted into our policy, a spokesperson later told outlets over the weekend. We're sorry for the confusion this has caused. Critics, however, didn't appear to buy PayPal's claims it was all just an innocent error that was promptly updated with the correct information. The intense blowback will not likely be helpful for PayPal shares which have thus far been a poor investment in 2022, while payment service giants like Visa declined by only 15% year-to-date, PayPal has more than halved in value. Even eBay, its former parent until 2015, has fared better, having only fallen some 43% in the period. Shares in PayPal are expected to open 1.5% lower, Today, underperforming the broader tech market. Um, PayPal is not upset that it happened. They're upset that they got caught. In true form of being total shit stains on society, CNN journalists who entered the Thai daycare where more than 20 children were killed in a massacre have issued apologies for their coverage. On Thursday, a pair of journalists from the United States outlet entered the site 
where a former policeman killed 36 people, most of whom were preschoolers. During a knife and gun rampage at the Young Children's Development Center in Utah, Taiwan. The mass killing, considered to be one of the deadliest ever carried out in the Southeast Asian nation, unfolded in a small farming community in Thailand's northeast. The suspect in the murders, a former member of the force who was dismissed from his post last year over drug allegations, stormed the building and killed dozens before fleeing and killing his own wife and child, and then taking his own life. The pair of journalists were initially accused of trespassing and filming without appropriate credentials, but were later cleared of any further wrongdoing after they entered the daycare to record footage of the carnage that had unfolded. The police, Thai police investigated the incident after the issue was brought to them by the Foreign Correspondence Club of Thailand and Thai Journalists Association, both of whom issued statements that criticized the United States news crew for a serious breach of journalistic ethics in crime reporting. Would one of their crews have behaved in the same way at a serious crime scene in the United States? A reporter shared a viral image of the two crew members leaving the scene, which shows one member climbing over a low wall fence um, around the compound, and they're literally climbing over police tape. The other reporter was already on the other side. CNN's international executive vice president and general manager Mike McCarthy also issued an apology on behalf of the news outlet beginning by saying that his reporters sought permission to enter the building, but the team now understands that these officials were not authorized to grant this permission. Added that it was never their intention to contravene any rules. The news outlet has pulled the video footage from their broadcast and removed record of it from their website. Where is the line, I ask my audience? I saw a video earlier this morning of a woman in Kyiv videoing a man who had literally been blown to bits by a bomb and she's vlogging over his corpse with a like a selfie camera at herself. Where is the line in reporting the news versus clickbait ratings chasing at the expense of dead individuals? Would CNN had walked into the Uvalde school to capitalize on the gore in a crime scene? Or was this more acceptable to them because it was Thai children that were murdered and therefore the investigation and respect to them was unimportant? Joe Biden and other Democrats are considering a range of actions to blunt the impacts of OPEC's decision to cut oil shipments, though none of their options look appealing. Now, White House and congressional leaders are eyeing several responses to protect to protect U.S. consumers, ranging from an effort to wrest market control away from OPEC, limiting U.S. companies' energy exports and easing sanctions on unfriendly oil-producing countries, each of which carries serious potential downsides for American interests. But who cares about American interests, right? For now, The White House is pledging to work with Congress on a bill to allow the United States to sue oil cartels for antitrust violations, a step that lawmakers from both sides of the aisle have threatened before, but which the Biden administration has been wary of taking. 
this is really the first time we've had a president who's supporting it with a Congress that looks likely to support it as well. What was previously unthinkable is no longer unthinkable. Imagine that. Joe Biden and unthinkable policies seem so predictable. The rest of the menu of options under discussion range from the imperfect to the disastrous, market analysts say. Their consensus consensus opinion is that the policy measures that would actually bring down gasoline prices would require long-term planning. So the best thing lawmakers could do for the energy markets right now is to shut up. Absent donning a muzzle, these are the steps that Biden and other Democrats have floated as potential ideas so far for responding to OPEC. First, the so-called NOPEC bill. No oil-producing and exporting cartels would change antitrust laws to allow the Justice Department to sue nations that restrain trade in oil, natural gas, or any petroleum product. The threat of NOPEC and similar legislation might serve as a fastball to brush back OPEC on occasion. But enacting it and unleashing lawsuits against OPEC members would lead to a new level of antagonism between the United States and OPEC, potentially spooking oil markets. It also wouldn't necessarily bring prices down at the pump anytime soon. Number two, shrink U.S. gasoline shipments. The Energy Department has jousted with oil companies for months over the idea of temporarily limiting how much fuel the United States exports which is a figure now at around 4 million barrels a day. The Energy Department argues that the fuel could be better used to fill regional inventories inside the United States. Shocker. Which are currently below the seasonal average. This article says the problem with that idea, and I want to be really clear, this is the article's opinion, not mine. The problem with that idea is the United States refining interest industry is operating at reduced capacity as older plants that have been running flat out for months have suffered production hiccups and several have been forced into maintenance. With demand remaining strong, basically every drop of fuel is heading to consumers, including those living in allied countries that have seen their domestic prices jump as they move away from Russian supplies. Taking that fuel off the global market would almost inevitably lead to higher prices and anger Europe where a large percentage of U.S. diesel goes. I'm really concerned about Europe and how they feel right now. Number three, open a strategic fuel reserve. The U.S. has one for crude oil, and Biden has released more than 170 million barrels from it this year. But it does not have a stockpile of gasoline or diesel fuel. The problem with this idea is that gasoline has a much shorter shelf life than oil. It typically has to be used within six months before it begins to deteriorate. That means that any reserve would require constant swapping in and out of fuel to make sure everything stays fresh. A reserve would also have to account for the different gasoline types sold in various regions. Ease sanctions on Iran and Venezuela, which is the most politically risky and most likely to happen, in my opinion, The administration has launched efforts to negotiate with both of those regimes, especially when domestic fuel prices rise. 
but reaching any sort of agreement that would be palatable from a policy and political standpoint will take time. I think there's now a clear incentive to ease sanctions on several oil producers, such as Venezuela. The question of an Iran nuclear deal will also once again be on the table, so new tentative negotiations will probably be a focus in the coming weeks. Number five, produce more domestically, which we all know is not going to happen uh, in a campaign season, so we can just go ahead and strike that off the list. Or number six, pull military support from Saudi Arabia. We already insulted Mohammed bin Salman. Why not just poke that bear a little bit more? The White House is gearing up for a growing army of staff to fend off potential Republican-led probes on everything from Hunter Biden to the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Taxpayers are footing the bill. Battening down the hatches should the GOP regain control of the House of Representatives in the midterm elections, the White House is shelling out $265,000 a year in salary for staff whose primary portfolio will be to run comms and defense for the administration from an approaching blizzard of subpoenas. In May, the White House poached Richard Sauber, the top attorney for the Department of Veterans Affairs, to serve as deputy counsel to the president, tasked with handling House oversight probes. And Sam's a veteran of Vice President Harris's failed 2020 presidential campaign, was hired to run official comms for, for the team. God, I can't talk. White House records show the two men will take home $155,000 and $110,000, respectively, and the team is only expected to grow, indicating that its staffing and operational expenditures will balloon further. House Republicans have vowed to investigate everything from the origins of coronavirus to the botched withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan. The party's marquee probe will focus on Hunter Biden and what connections his father, President Biden, had to his shady overseas business dealings. With that being said, uh, the wildly interesting and fascinating part about this is instead of worrying about what they can do to benefit the country. They're going to do a bunch of investigations that lead nowhere, accomplish nothing, waste your and my money doing so, and we will all still be sitting here while they're doing just fine. That is Monday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I appreciate you guys tuning in. Indian Apocalypse was a great success. Wish you all were there. You guys take care and have a great day. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.